Thank you for tuning into Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan Kane. Welcome back, returning listeners, and if you're listening for the first time, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Radio Never Part is an interview feature started at the beginning of 2020, which launches monthly as part of the Never Apart online magazine. I have interviewed some incredible people in various aspects of nightlife and nightlife culture across North America, including performers, DJs, drag performers, promoters, and so many more. In this episode, I'm speaking with Marta Marta of the House of Pride. House of Pride is a multidisciplinary performance collective that emerged in Montreal in the 1990s, consisting of Stephen Lorraine Hughes, Jackie Jett, Geoffrey Dumas, aka Frigid, Kiet Ha, Gartina J, and Martha Carter, aka Marta Marta. They were prolific in their output, from performing at nightclubs and parties to eventually launching a show in a theater venue and preparing a tour before parting ways around the year 2000. In this interview, Martha and I discussed that time period in Montreal and the trajectory of House of Pride. House of Pride is also the focus of an exhibition at Never Apart for our summer 2021 season titled Ballroom Boudoir, featuring photos taken by Stephen Hughes. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Martha. Thanks for having me, Jordan. <laughs> I've been so looking forward to this. The exhibition has been slowly assembling, coming together as we get ready for our summer season. And I have to admit, I've been around for a long time and part of Canadian nightlife in different cities for quite a long time. But I was not I was not totally familiar with the House of Pride in Montreal. Uh, and I've been learning about it as part of the exhibition. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your... Your background, your origin story, if you will, however you want to share that. For sure, for sure. You know, uh, we were really active for five years in the 90s, and um, it kind of came as a surprise in my life, I have to say, but it just seemed to be a coming together of a lot of uh, a lot of different kind of aspects of life in Montreal uh, that led to how surprised. And, of course, the kind of synthesis with myself and Stephen Lorraine Hughes. So um, just going back, we Stephen and I met in dance school, actually. Mm. We both come from a performance art background. I came from a really um, artistic family. My mom's a musician, and my father was a great supporter of the arts. And mm. growing up, I was surrounded by a lot of um, diversity, a lot of artistic people. And I went off cool. to dance school and met Stephen and we started collaborating together and uh, we spent time in New York together and we just kind of really got along in terms of our perspective around uh, performance art and choreography and dance and uh, when we ended up in in Montreal in the early 90s I had moved there earlier and then he came to continue collaborating together it was in montreal we actually fell in love and got married wow, that wow. Was, um, really kind of an um an exciting time because for me 
I just uh, was so excited to be with this person who was so creative and kind of openly bisexual and out you know, thinks outside of the box all the time. And he, he kind of uh, jostled me out of my uh, kind of sleepy way of seeing the arts. I think, you know, a little bit conservative, a little bit straight, a little bit white, you know, and I just uh, suddenly was with uh, somebody who was very, very curious about exploring kind of the wild, wilder and wider world. And so uh, it didn't take long for him to want to explore the nightlife of Montreal and uh, little did we know that we actually arrived in the nightlife of Montreal just in the years just following the, the sex garage raid. Of course. Which I understand now was a huge turning point in the, the LGBTQT world of Montreal. It, yeah. it kind of created a, a movement of, well, it started as protests, obviously, and then it moved into kind of a unifying uh, of the community that led into diversité. So mm. this was kind of the moment that we started to explore the clubs. And from a perspective of performance art, it was a super exciting place for us, right? Mm. Compared to, say, the, the contemporary dance theater had its value, absolutely. And that's where we spent a lot of our time. And I started working with uh, the company Marie Chouinard, who's a very well-known dance company in, in Montreal. Mm. And um, so... It was very common for me to be teaching ballet at nine o'clock in the morning, and it didn't take long before that kind of went out the window, and I was kind of coming <laughs> home at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that really was a difference in my life, but it well. was an exciting one because suddenly um, I was kind of inspired at, of um, inspired to see the different takes on, um, I guess, on expression. Let's put it that way, yeah. and how. Um, Basically, walking into uh, Cox in you know at midnight, and the the dance floor was lit up. It was a time of um, sort of the beginning of the digital world in a way. Yeah. So the DJs were starting to really uh, become a, more of an international movement of its own. The dance scene uh, had kind of transitions from from raves, or it was kind of convergence of raves and dance clubs all over the world that yeah. kind of were sharing DJs and then that was leading into the international circuit parties and suddenly it was kind of a, a much bigger movement than just um, a club show late at night in a in a club in Montreal, right? It yeah. was kind of part of a much bigger movement. So what else was happening was, of course, uh, it was the peak of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. So uh, there was a big movement to bring Montreal into the solutions and the ACT mm. UP um, kind of movement from Montreal came through Blaine Charles from from um, New York and I think he I'm not sure exactly what what his mission was uh, but it it seemed like it turned into world balls I'm not sure exactly if it was him that started the world balls um, because they weren't really a tradition in Montreal at that time even though they were a tradition elsewhere it's so funny you mentioned mm -hmm. Blaine Blaine was actually the second or the third uh, interview on my <laughs> podcast that I did and I had met Blaine in New York and had intended to interview him in person. And then right when COVID was, you know, emerging and unfolding and I had to leave New York, I wasn't able to do it in person, but I interviewed him over the phone. And that was when he shared 
Timmy he shared with me about the, his time moving to Montreal and the world ball community starting and stuff. So I know a little bit of this history and it's so wonderful to hear from your perspective. Yeah, actually I did listen to Blaine's uh, interview. It was really nice to hear his voice. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. He was a really uh, big force in bringing uh, the the House of Pride into the clubs. So basically, uh, it just kind of all unfolded within a couple of years. So Stephen and I were together. We were excited about doing performance art together, but we decided that we wanted to do something more along the lines of kind of the the, uh, performance art rather than just the contemporary dance. We decided to bring in more performers. So we actually auditioned people that we met right off the dance floor of Cox. We kind of just kept our eye open for dynamic-looking dancers and performers. And uh, I guess that led to us uh, meeting Joffrey Frigid and Jackie Jett. And uh, shortly after, Gartina Jay came along. She'd been dancing in the clubs already. And uh, we did some kind of cabaret-type performances because I was... we weren't really part of that scene exactly, but we were so excited by it. And yeah. we had our other kind of contacts with Studio 303, a dance studio in downtown Montreal, where I had actually founded that studio a few years before. And they held late night performance kind of events, I guess, hmm. and parties. And they started holding cabarets as fundraisers. And then Blaine was starting these World Ball fundraisers, which was a big part of the ACT UP kind of uh, initiative to raise funds. Yeah. And uh, then there was this, uh, you know, Diversité was starting with Puelo and Suzanne Girard. And I, I look back now and I realize it was it, it was kind of a swirl of activity. Yeah. That, that it was a convergence and we just kind of arrived then without knowing the difference really. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Stephen signed up for I think it was the second world ball we hadn't been part of the first one um, and he went in as House of Lorraine and I was his sidekick and helped do his makeup and costume and <laughs> <laughs> kind of held his water bottle and he got out on that runway and just rocked it I'd never seen anything quite like that and wow. uh, he also always had a camera with him and loved uh, shooting the general crowd and he also had me film his performance with a with a video which was all kind of new-ish at the time right yeah and people didn't have cell phones people weren't always recording everything so the fact that we went in there with our camera and our video camera very early on and then we always had them with us for the next 10 years basically meant that we captured a lot of um, action that we have in boxes (laughs) since then which is now we're we're pulling them out and looking at them which is really fun yeah um so that's what's led partially to the never apart exhibit this year the ballroom boudoir uh is is just the beginning of us pulling out some of our archives so wow. uh, yeah, so that uh, that night, the House of Lorraine uh, got some attention, and I think it actually was there that we met uh, some of the players uh, who were putting on other shows. Uh, there was Zucchini Night at Cox, and there was uh, Pierre Vienne off and held performance at Sky at the time, and we just started being asked to do shows and Mm. we had brought in Joffrey and uh, Jackie and uh, I think Gartina as well 
was part of our first few shows. Hmm. And I look back at those and we were pretty ragged around the edges, but we, you know, had a lot of spirit. <laughs> character. character was a big part of who we were. I mean, just walking into a room, uh, the, our very presence was kind of part of the message. Yeah. You know, six larger than life characters representing diversity, culture, gender diversity, gay, bi, straight, black, Asian, Caucasian, male, female. And just there was someone, someone for everyone in our in our group, right? The audience oh. often identified with at least one, if not all of us. Yeah. And I didn't really see myself as part of the group of performers right away. I'm a natural mm. director. I'm a choreographer. I kind of stepped into uh, kind of arrange the shows. And I often played the role of kind of um, administrator, producer, person, kind of setting up the shows and... Uh, getting us kind of organized, let's say, because I wouldn't say that, you know, performers are always the easiest to organize. And uh, we didn't go into it thinking we were doing drag. We were going into mm. it doing performance, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, But very quickly, I think the whole city kind of caught on to the fun of drag. And mm. throughout history, we know that drag has, has you know, kind of been a, a platform yeah. throughout history. And mm -hmm. it, it can appear to be uh, just for fun or just for entertainment, but really it's um, it's a way of changing perspectives and advancing cultural dialogue around dif difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I sort of understood that from, from kind of my directorial perspective, then that's when we really started to understand that we had something between us that was more than just crazy entertainment. And, mm -hmm. uh, because at first that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And at first I kept thinking, oh, this is just so kind of out there. And why would I be involved in this rather than being involved in that serious theater business? Mm -hmm. But of course, walking into uh, contemporary performance theater, uh, you'd be lucky if you had a couple hundred people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, you walk into Cox at midnight and there's a thousand people there so <laughs> the excitement and energy was just intoxic intoxicating for me and yeah. I guess I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself mm -hmm. and the group itself uh, each individual is super talented and has their own qualities and their own um, kind of specific talents but mm. they together we were larger than any one of us right sure. and and the impact of us being together was especially unique as soon as I put myself in the mix mm. in drag as well mm. because suddenly it's like well who's the real woman and who's not and who cares yeah. is really what the what the question became yeah and and who's the gay and who's the street and who's the bi? Well, who cares? Yeah. And once I started to see it like that, <laughs> then it really started to become a, a bigger kind of research and exploration around what is our message and what impact can we can we have that's that's more than just getting the crowd dancing. And mm. uh, Stephen was. Um, very interested in going further afield and doing that research. So we ended up at the March on Washington hmm. and we ended up um, at many different gay prides, New York, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, we were actually part of the very first gay pride in Montreal. There was a guy named Nicholas Jenkins who had come up from New York and he'd been involved in, um, in a lot of the community 
projects in New York. And I guess I'm not exactly sure how he ended up in Montreal, but we, uh, he was working at Cox, I think doing a lot of the graphic design and promotion and that sort of thing. And mm. we became friendly and he's like, I want to have a gay pride in Montreal. And Stephen and I actually drew out the first map. We drew a hand map of the route and we passed wow. it out at the clubs. And then, you know, there was like a tambourine and a bugle and a couple of drag queens. And <laughs> it was, it was a very small event, but it, I think that was 1993 two or 1993 i'm not sure exactly but it was never the same after that it things it was like we added you just i don't know what happened something just exploded and all of a sudden within a couple of years the montreal gay pride was this huge international event and it was has grown bigger and bigger and bigger of course um to the point where it's it's well known as a huge festival for the whole summer and the whole uh village as is a destination and uh, yeah. it was not like that when we started at all but i think that uh with nicholas's awareness of what was happening elsewhere with blaine charles there it was just um a new perspective that came into into the city to ignite the entire community uh with this kind of parallel entertainment and activism hmm. and, and so that our performances started to mean something more because of that. Yeah. And because Stephen had his camera with him, uh, he often uh, photographed the parades, people's signs, uh, the graffiti, let's say, the art installations. And so then that ends up being a whole other record of um, kind of the movement at that time. Yeah. Um, of course, he was on stage and off stage, behind the scenes as often as much of a performance as on the, on the stage. And uh, so, you know, being in the dressing rooms and kind of being part of the banter and uh, getting to know the players, uh, Madame Simone and Mado, and, you know, they had been there before us at, at yeah. clubs like Lazard, and um, they are still there as huge uh, kind of mentors and leaders in the community. Um, we just were swept into that. And, of mm. course, uh, anyone who knows Madame Simone knows that she's an incredibly talented artist and costume mm. maker and uh, performer herself. And she really encouraged us. So it wasn't just us alone, right? We became mm. part of this this huge, um, I guess, excitement in the community to see that not only could they rise above the um, prejudice and the homophobia, uh, but they could have a voice mm. beyond Montreal. Mm -hmm. and, and so as soon as Montreal started to become part of that um, kind of I guess the circuit parties, the black and blue started, the white party, the red party, the, you know, the, the uh, world balls, and then the gay pride festival, the diversité, that just, like I say, within a few years, that, that had become so much bigger, and we were in the middle of all of it, but then what to do next was the big question. Yeah. So, so that is when we started to think about creating a, another kind of a bigger piece, not just a 15 minute performance for the clubs, but to actually 
like I said, kind of be part of a bigger picture, maybe create something a little bit more... Um, like lasting? We called, it an, or like, we called it an opera. We created okay. something we called house opera. Sounds like such an energetic time in Montreal. And I think within Canadian cities, Montreal is always known as having the most vibrant and dynamic arts and performance scene. I mean, at least, you know, as long as I've been aware of it, that's sort of what I've known of it. And I know that the nightclub scene is, has been dynamic going as far back as like the 1940s even, but it sounds like really you, it was like a convergence. And I I was thinking of even words like cross pollination, right. As a way of like, you know, ideas sort of fueling each other and the energy of creative people, you know, really enhancing one another's ideas and concepts in order for them all to sort of improve. Um, so I, it, it just sounds amazing. And it's really so much more rich than I was even aware in terms of what all was well, going on. Montreal is known as an artistic city. And the vaudeville there, back to pro- prohibition times, right? Yeah. It, it, it was uh, well known as a more liberal city in some ways, which mm-hmm. is always ironic in a super Catholic place. Yeah. But um, yeah, the other thing that was happening was that um, in the... In the early 80s in Montreal, things really changed in that city. I, I moved there in 86. Okay. And it was kind of a re-emerge, uh, let's say a regrowth after the separatist years, mm. right? So there was a, a big exodus from the city in the 80s. A lot of the banks left. A lot of the money left. Mm. There was a lot of um, apartments available for rent at very inexpensive prices yeah. for that reason. Um, and so... I moved there to teach at Concordia University, not really knowing Montreal very well. Hmm. Um, and it was incredible to me, having because I had been in New York right before that, that the the rents were like, you know, $80 a month kind of thing. People wow. had free months of rent just so that there was tenants in the apartment. The landlords would offer free months. And um, it was a time that artists would take over huge lofts were all over the place in, in old Montreal, up in the Kazganaya area. And uh, I remember being in these places where, you know, three, four or five people would live. Um, they would have like bicycles and roller skates and it, it was so big. They, they could take over the whole place. Wow. Of course there was no heat and people had to have, <laughs> you know, windows covered in plastic and wear layers of clothing, but it was affordable to live there and be full-time artists. Let's put it that way. Yeah. People converged from all over to, because it was affordable. Mm. And so it was already a creative place. The Quebec government has always supported the arts very well compared to the rest of Canada. Yeah. So, uh, there was much more funding available for artists and it was inexpensive for living. So that was a magnet for people. Yeah. So not only was there this uh, recent history of the sex garage, which led to this the protest and unification of the community, but it was um, a time of uh, incredible ex- artistic creative explosion and uh, kind of a coming forth of the Quebecois art scene, mm. uh, which... Uh, everybody got to be part of who was there. Mm. And so a lot of the people I was meeting in the arts were also finding the allure of the underground as being a place of kind of pushing ideas, pushing boundaries. And there was a real cross-pollination, like you said, Mm. uh, between those those two worlds. And um, 
for me, they became just one world. And Stephen and I uh, bought one of those lofts um, mm. in the plateau, uh, our own um, house where the House of Pride ended up doing most of the rehearsals. And of course, being a big old loft, uh, it attracts all kinds of um, parties and events. And so we were actually able to host <laughs> a lot of, uh, wow. let's say, spontaneous performance and spontaneous kind of creativity. Um, we were able to provide rehearsal space to people. We were able to uh, kind of uh, house people when they didn't have their own home for a while. Mm. And so it was, it ended up being the house where the house of pride lived, but it was uh, bigger than just um, us. It was bigger than just our shows and our group. We worked with, uh, musicians, composers, uh, visual artists, designers, lots of you know makeup artists and designers because uh, some of the girls, uh, Jackie Jet, Joffrey, and Kiet, all became makeup professional makeup artists. Right. And uh, Gartina had trained professionally in dance. Uh, Joffrey and uh, Jackie Jet had actually um, studied dance and music at a performance art school together. So they are longtime dear friends. Hmm. Um, Kiet was kind of like a natural model, beautiful kind of multi-gendered being, <laughs> let's say. I mean, just this sort of, <laughs> that was, it was so magical for me to meet people who could be so many I guess alter egos, I'm going to say, right? Yeah. The makeup and the hair and the costume and the lighting and the performances was were so transformative and, and allowed for um, kind of magic, let's say. And I was fascinated by that, having grown up as a straight, white, English girl in on the West Coast who studied ballet, right? It's just kind of like, it was a real flip-flop for me to suddenly realize, like, what? wait a second, I can explore my alter egos too. Yeah. And I can explore the many sides of me. Mm -hmm. And and that idea of who's who and who's what and realizing that none of it really matters. Let's let's all just come together and explore each other's beauty and each other's um, unique perspectives on the world. And we all could kind of share in the idea that we could explore. And that became what we started to do towards this bigger show is to explore each of our own way of seeing who we were, how we impact each other, how we impact the world as a group. What do we have to say together? What's important to say? What's important to share? And that became um, really, let's say, Hmm. deep is the mm -hmm. word because we mm -hmm. we basically encourage each other to write our own histories hmm. and to share them with each other and Gartina came around one day I mean Gardena one of the most amazing creative beings I've ever met incredible dancer incredible singer musician um, and he just read the story to us one day that he'd written which was basically his own story hmm his own coming out story and it wasn't a happy one at all hmm. he'd been 
well, he, he it, it turned into a show that we called High Heels. Mm. And we presented that at Tangent, which is a theater in Montreal. And it was part of a moment d'homme, moment d'homme series celebrating um, man. And he basically got on stage and bravely told the story of being attacked and and abused by a group of people on his very first night out ever to a gay bar. And he wow. had never told the story before. He basically mm-hmm. left home. He was so ashamed and so afraid. He left home after that and never told his family, never told anyone until he told us that story as a group. Wow. And that was after being together for a couple of years. So, you know, that just sort of shows how there was an unfolding, I guess, together. We were able to kind of trust and share together. Yeah. And we were such an unlikely group, right? We'd all come from such different places, but somehow together, like I said, there was a, a kind of a synergy that allowed us to, I guess, come out together, let's put it that way, yeah. in new ways. And uh, for me... I realized that I had actually always thought that I'd lived in a really liberal place and I had been exposed to a liberal world, but I realized that I'd been very um, protected. And of course, uh, your own family culture and the way you see things and all that. I, I just, I understood that I, I could be whoever I wanted to be, just mm. like I watched Gartina completely shine as a, uh, a different character every time she got onto a go-go box. She had such a way with costume and with makeup and and incredible dance skills. And I don't know. I just, I'd never seen anything like it. Hmm. And that, it's not like I could aspire to be Gartina, but I could certainly, um, you know, I could be, I could let myself explore more of myself. And that was a huge gift. Yeah. And of course, I didn't come from perhaps the same struggle like Gartina did, or, you know, Kiet also had never spoken to his family. And, um, you know, Joffrey and Jackie were uh, from much more open families. So then, to, and then Stephen, oh, Stephen came from Baptist land in Kentucky, where his family wow. was completely closed to different ways of being so you know for him to arrive in Montreal and come out as the house of Lorraine and and then get married to me and then to you know (laughs) be part of this club scene and you know his parents from Kentucky came to visit and they were just like oh my goodness I'm not sure who my what's going on here so you know it's like it's like dropping a little drop into the pond and then the ripple effect was so dramatic. Yeah. So um, I should mention here that sadly Gartina passed away a few years ago mm. and uh, we'd lost touch with her. She'd ended up in Toronto and uh, that was really, really hard to hear that she'd struggled and, and she actually you know, had tried to reconnect with her family and struggled with that. And, you know, she just didn't have an easy time of it. Uh, But in some ways we can thank her because uh, that brought us all back together again. Yeah. And that's included in the description of the exhibition that that was one of the catalysts for everyone to, to, you know, present and to sort of formally start to put some work into uh, looking at this history and sharing it with other people. And I think it's so important Everything you're describing, it just makes me 
want to get back into and especially having been under you know sort of a COVID lockdown for the last 15 months right like to just get back into that world of creating performance and magic and expressing and all this expressive energy I think it's has the potential to really positively impact other people so I mean I'm thankful to you for sharing all of this about this history and I think it's hugely important yeah and I think it's important to remember that um as much as um it it the scene in Montreal really got stimulated at that time for the, the reasons we mentioned, the sex garage, the reaction to the sex garage raid, uh, the AIDS fundraising, the beginning of gay pride in Montreal, the circuit parties, the coming together of uh, dance clubs as a place for everybody. So I guess before the sex garage, it was quite common for the, the gay men and the gay women to have their own parties and their own clubs and they weren't really mingling, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the rave world and the ecstasy world, the DJ world, the the oncoming digital world with video effects and lighting effects, that all started to attract ge- the general public, let's say, the, yeah. the, the whole public. So the gays, the straights, the the queers, I mean, I, I happily joined what I call the straight queer movement for myself. I was so mm-hmm. excited to be part of this kind of world of exploration um, that was larger than just any one group of people. Mm-hmm. And that first gay pride that I walked down, uh, I started down Saint-Denis with the House of Pride. At the time, it was on Saint-Denis. First year, it was only on half of Saint-Denis, which was funny, but... <laughs> um, uh, I couldn't believe the numbers of families uh, from all walks of life, all different cultures, cheering on, loving the spectacle, right? Loving the wildness, the openness. I think, in fact, that first year, I was was the groom to Blaine's uh, bride. Yes, I was the groom to Blaine's bride. And we were on, like, a float night. Amazing. It was my... Yeah, it was... was, uh, Yeah, that was... (laughs) It was quite something, and it was it was quite something because I just didn't know what to expect. I, it was so new for me. Yet suddenly, it's like, oh my goodness, this is like for everyone, and yeah. everyone has something to gain from this. Everybody has some freedom in their own life to gain from this. Is really what I started to see. Absolutely, is that you, we could be an example of how you don't have to take everything so darn seriously. You don't have to be so conformist. Mm-hmm. Everybody can let their own well I used to say there's flag fly yeah but just let your own queerness come out whatever that is let yourself uh have fun with your tickle trunk and pull out the costumes and pull out the wigs and let yourself be creative in your own way and expressive in your own way and sure maybe you have to put your your other drag back on to go back to the office on Monday but that's just another drag yeah yeah I just think it's all so, so magical. I just love hearing it uh, recounted in this way. Um, I'm, I'm curious what, how you found it navigating um, being so immersed in a really creative sort of sphere and living and creating in the same space and having the house all kind of be like one physical space. Was it something you felt like you could have time away from or that you needed time away from? Or did you love being in it 24-7 as your home, studio, life, everything. 
Well, uh, I wouldn't say it was always easy. Um, I did have my other job where I would uh, I was touring with uh, Maurice Menard, and mm-hmm. so I would take off on tours for weeks or months at a time sometimes. Um, and I also taught dance regularly. Uh, so, you know, I kind of had my other world that I, I would connect with as well. Mm. Although, like I say, there was a lot of cross-pollination between those worlds. Um, it was a lot. Uh, the fact that we had this place of gathering uh, that kind of took away from our own private time, mm-hmm. our own private life, our own personal life. I didn't really understand that until it was over. Mm. But when I looked back after we all kind of, uh, the project folded around 2000 and Stephen and I broke up and, you know, it was a big change. Uh, a lot of shifts happened kind of right at that, the new century. Mm. Um, and the nightlife changed too. It's kind of like that had, had run its course. Yeah. Uh, a lot of clubs closed or changed um the uh, they changed the dynamic of the club um at you know in those four or five years where we, we were where we were doing a lot of performance uh there was a lot of other people doing kind of extravagant performance as well we kind of sparked a movement of that really mm-hmm. like we were the first ones getting out on stage as a group and kick and turn and dance and be kind of really choreographed um because i mean let's face it drag queens usually work alone it's kind of an individual art yeah but since we started as a performance group and then we moved more and more into drag, it was kind of like new, I suppose. Yeah. It was new and different for there to be kind of groups. And uh, ha- the houses, as much as they're considered a group, they don't always perform together. They, the individual members would perform one at a time. True. But for us to get up on stage as six people and perform was unusual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying all that because it, that's what was happening at my home all the time was there was always a group there. We were always putting things together as a group. We were always sharing costumes and makeup and shoes and platforms. And, you know, then Madame Simone would arrive and then Mado just lived, uh, lived around the corner. And then, you know, we had uh, Miriam from Studio 303 who she was putting on her own kind of girl parties, meow mix, she called them. And mm. uh, she she and I worked together at Studio 303, and she literally lived like five minutes away as well. Like, it was like this whole community that we were right in the middle of it. Mm. And um, I loved it, but it did have this sense of kind of being relentless because it was yeah. um, it was in, in, in my own home and in my own relationship. And so... Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it definitely hit a peak when I think both Gartina and Jackie Jet both needed a place to live for a while, and I sort of felt like I used to make the joke that I had never really spent time in the nightclubs. And when I when I got there, it was like a new and wild world, a world like a jungle of 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 let's say secrets that and and corners that I could go and explore, and I had never seen. It was thrilled to enter into it and visit it and then when it started to come and be in my house (laughs) and and it's like this wild new world was actually in my home all the time yeah I started to think well maybe you know maybe I didn't need to well it's not like we planned it it just kind of happened it it was a little like let's say we lost all sense of boundaries yeah (laughs) and that was okay for a while. We were young, you know, that our ages ranged between like 17 and 30 or something when we all first got together. Yeah. And so, you know, those, 
that was fine. It, but after a few years, it started to be like, well, I could use a little more privacy. Stephen and I could use a little more privacy. But now that I look back, I realize that's not what we were together for. We were together for all the reasons we just talked about. Yeah. And we, we loved each other dearly. It just wasn't really sustainable. He, um, he needed to move on and explore life in a new way. And uh, so did I. So hmm. uh, we ended up creating that house opera that I was talking about, the bigger show that we created. Uh, we uh, performed that at the Sadie Bronfman Center, it was called at the time. I know it's changed its name now. Um, and we drew tons of press coverage. We had huge crowds and honestly, the show was not really ready to be performed (laughs) Mm. because we hit our limit, right? So as much as we had the desire to kind of cross over into kind of Broadway, let's call it, we were kind of creating a bigger spectacular show that we hoped we could tour the world with or something. We we just didn't quite have what it took to, as a group to, uh, let's say, finesse it. Mm. Uh, it just, we we all started to get tired, I think is really what happened. Mm. And uh, there were, it just wasn't that sustainable. So you have that much energy, it eventually just has to explode, right? Yeah. It just kind of built up and built up. And, and, and we all needed to go and explore on our own and do our own thing after that. So... There was a lot of uh, wonderful work in that opera, but it would have taken an outside director. I wasn't able to hold the reins of that anymore. I was, you know, it was too personal. Yeah. And we we tried to bring in some outside directors, but um, it just wasn't meant to be really. I think that the whole point of um, kind of exploring your own individual expression um, could only go so far as a group, right? Mm -hmm. So we, Mm -hmm. as a group, we tried to bring bring these ideas together but really ultimately like I said with Garth's story and with each person's story we we tried to bring that together as a group story and it just uh it was a little bigger we we bit up bit off a bit more than we could chew Hmm. but uh on the other hand well it was it was more than we could chew artistically but it was also more than we could chew as a you know personally as a group there's a lot of pressure on the group to do that and not everybody had the same level of uh training and professionalism to kind of go into that bigger theater place. There's different protocols, there's different processes, and uh, hmm. a lot of times the people behind the theaters are a lot more conservative, and it just, we kind of ran into more more problems. But that wasn't until we got a couple of Canada Council grants hmm. uh, for the creation of it, and uh, we did actually do three or four shows and then the group decided to take a break. But then Gartina, Stephen and I, Lorraine and I, um, we toured it across Canada as a different kind of a show, just the three of us, hmm. because we already had that contract lined up, but it just wasn't feasible to do it. It wasn't, it was too expensive, uh, we, too time consuming and all that to try to get the group together for that. Um, yeah. So that was hard the three of us together it completely changed the show obviously Mm uh and yet we needed to do it we needed to follow it through yeah and uh but by the end of that tour Gartina had met somebody who wanted him to move to Toronto and pursue his music career Mm. and uh Stephen and I realized that maybe 
we needed to go into different directions and, you know, it just mm. sort of all good things come to an end, let's say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but it all just kind of fizzled. It didn't really, it kind of exploded and then fizzled. And then we are, we're, none of us were really sure mm. what to do next. And certainly not as a group. So um, when Gartina passed and we all got together again, we gathered in Montreal for a memorial it was so touching and it was, it brought back all these memories and right away we all just were loving each other again and we were mm. so happy to see each other again. And that kind of sparked us to think about, well, maybe there's something we could still do. Maybe we're not done yet, actually. Yeah. And 20 years later, looking at photos and videos and realizing how maybe some of this footage and some of these archives are unique and important uh, prompted um joffrey really uh he he's like let's start talking on zoom you know in in um in the covid yeah. why not let's just start talking and and thinking about what we could do together really mm-hmm. um and online we started to kind of brainstorm and we all pulled out our boxes and we realized like oh my goodness we have so much stuff i i have all the videos Stephen has over thirty thousand negatives of photography wow. i have about 200 videos and uh everybody has their own other recordings and photos and pamphlets and costumes and all those things so we thought well there must there must be a way that we can do something with this. So we started by doing a music video and a, a, an original soundtrack called Queer Nation that we got the rights to use a Lolita Holloway's um, voice on it. And um, Joffrey did a wonderful job creating that music. He's, he's been a music producer and a performer all along. Hmm. And uh, Stephen hasn't been doing a lot of photography for the last 20 years. He kind hmm. of put down his camera and his high heels when he moved out of Montreal. He moved to L.A. And uh, hmm. so for him to open his boxes and to realize the treasure trove in there, we kind of made it as a memorial to Gartina. Yeah. And um, so it's a fun soundtrack and then the music video to go with it. And it was in the Imagination Festival last fall. Hmm. And now we're going to be, uh, it's going to be touring to some other film festivals, which is really exciting. And then that's led to us doing the ballroom boudoir at the Never Apart. So who knows how that's going to go and what that's going to stimulate next because we have a few plans for the future incredible it sounds to me like really this could be just the beginning and I think putting together an exhibition is something really powerful to sort of you know have to distill some of the work down a little bit and to curate it a little bit and think about the presentation and stuff and then it causes a bit of a revisiting of all of it as well so uh how exciting well it's also a revisiting of the um the impact, you know, the revisiting yes. of like exactly what does matter here and what is the message and what does, what, yeah, what, what does it, what does it all mean kind of thing, right? And it, it's tricky because it's not really up to us to know that. It's, it's up True. to us to just put out our work and, uh, and get that feedback. And that's what we, I never knew if that would ever happen, but now it looks like it's going to happen. Hearing from you and hearing about what you've heard about House of Pride or, you know, reconnecting to some of the players that, you know, that we knew in the community at that time. So many people are still so active in the community. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I moved out of Montreal in 2006. So, Mm. um, 
you know, I stay, I have very close ties there, but I'm not involved in that world anymore. So for me to revisit it and realize, oh, wow, a lot of the players are still there. A lot of them are still active. And it's just wonderful to reconnect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's an interesting time as well for this because I sort of came of age in the 90s, right, and was active in nightlife in the 90s and into the 2000s. And I think a lot of people can attest that it seems like now there's almost more sort of division and animosity between people who might otherwise have been maybe part of a similar group or from a similar background. And I just think prior to social media and prior to the sort of you know, dominance of the internet and, and connectivity that way in our worlds, it was actually easier to sort of just vibe and to cross pollinate and meet and connect with people who were like minded or who were maybe sort of from some of the same worlds you were. And so I'm not sure social media is, I think it's doing a bit of a disservice to connectivity. I I think what I observed is that sense that, um, things become commercialized, right? Mm. So we were at the beginning of something. It's like, it's just the birth. And so it was exciting. It was new. It really provided a, a platform for so many people to come together and share um, and to develop and organize and initiate and all those things at the beginning, right? It's mm. And then it's like the garden starts to grow. And if you don't keep track of it, before you know it, the whole thing's overgrown. Yeah. And so it sort of felt like when we hit 1999, 2000, it sort of felt like everything had exploded so big and it, it, it started to be f- feeling very commercialized. Yeah. You, know, you used to be able to knock on the back door of Cox and go, Hey, it's me. And then, you know, the other person on the side of the door and they just let you in and no problem before you, we knew it, there was security everywhere and there was, you know, big long lineups to get in and you needed to pay big money for things. And, mm. you know, it just, it, it's, it was, it was like not big enough. And then it was suddenly so big. Yeah. And when it mm. got, when it gets so big, then it's less personal and it's less community oriented. Yeah. It's great that Montreal attracts the world now to its festivals all summer long. And uh, it'll be great when the world gets to go back there because yeah. obviously this year has been different, but yeah. it's great that there's been so much uh, economy boost through that. And it's great that, you know, there was so much fundraising for AIDS and there was so much uh, movement around um, civil rights and gay rights and all of that happened. And then uh, it kind of becomes normalized and then it becomes commercialized. And then now we're on the other side of that Yeah. where then, like you say, it starts to kind of change again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, I guess we were lucky to be part of it in those early days. Mm-hmm. And and my hope with this podcast really has been, and, and actually somebody like Blaine was almost the perfect person to just have an opportunity to meet and connect with. Blaine was so generous to share with me when we first met in person, and it was through a lobbying event in New York. We went to speak with politicians at the state capitol in New York about access to health care. And Blaine is so generous and so just... Um, you know, just sharp and has such incredible memories of Montreal and, uh, you know, about the process of moving there and starting an ACT UP chapter there. And, um, you know, I was so inspired by all of that and just inspired by, I guess, that generosity of sharing about that time and about about their story. And so my hope with the podcast is to continue this on for other future generations to hear stories like your own and to hear about that time in Montreal and stuff. Uh, I think there's just, 
yeah, incredible value in it and so much wisdom. And it's so inspiring. I should say it's meaningful to me because between him and Steven, they kept encouraging me to get on stage with them. And I was like, why would I get up there? You know, why would anyone want me up on stage? (laughs) Who am I? I'm not really part of this. But I remember going with him and he helped me. I was kind of like, I don't have any proper outfits for this. And so we went to some shop where he knew somebody and got me to try on all these outfits that I would never have chosen for myself usually. And, you know, you know, growing up kind of on the West Coast in the 70s, hippie style. I mean, it was it was the girls that showed me how to put on a a push up bra. (laughs) I mean, I never I was never wearing bras, you know, I never wore makeup. I never wore wigs. You know, I never thought about kind of dressing myself up and certainly not making myself sexy or making myself, you know, kind of over the top. That always, that seemed kind of counterintuitive to me and certainly kind of anti-feminist or something. Mm. But once I understood it in in the context of the bigger picture and not taking things so seriously and having fun and, and stimulating possibilities and opening up transformation and allowing for transcendence and all those things. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, now I can grab onto that. But that first shopping spree, I remember even just standing there in front of the mirror, looking at myself in this little bathing suit thing going, are you kidding me? You want me to wear this? He's like, come on, you're a shop, you're beautiful. Come on. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean so we did this piece where we with Blaine um and Stephen and I where we started out kind of in military dress and Mm. then we whipped off our outfits and had these other outfits underneath and you know that wow and um that was just the beginning I I can't even remember what that show was but it, Mm. it just was you're right. It was the generosity of spirit. He would put himself out there. He was willing to not just put himself out there on stage and in performance, but he put himself out there to reach out to people and bring them in as well. Right. That yeah. was his mission. And yeah. he did it really well. It's um, it's really so wonderful and powerful to hear, to hear about all of your experiences and to hear about that time in Montreal. I think, um, I think right now it's really beneficial to just imagine that coming out of COVID and this fairly sort of, you know, difficult period for a lot of people that we just need to continue to reach back into that magic and look for the tickle trunk and just uh, look for those opportunities to be creative, expressive and to have fun and be joyful. And I bet there's going to be a, a little bit of a renaissance in that just for all the reasons you just I, said. I hope you know, so. Have been, been away from each other for a long time. Let's see what happens. I, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so grateful to, to speak with you. This has been so beautiful and thank you for being part of the Radio Never Apart podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Martha and that this sparks an interest to see the exhibition House of Pride Ballroom Boudoir, which is on view until September 25th, 2021, and can be experienced on the Never Apart website by clicking the Exhibitions tab. If you're in Montreal, you can visit Sandra Never Apart in person every Saturday between 12 p.m. and 5 p.m. Be sure to subscribe, leave a comment or review on whichever platform you're listening through. And you can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive.